Welcome to Beyond the Show, where the spirit of Cannabis Conference lights up the airwaves. My name is Eric Sandy, and I'm the digital editor of the Cannabis Group at GIE Media. This week, I'm very excited to have Cassie Tomaselli, Cannabis Conference Programming Director, joining me in studio at Beyond the Show World Headquarters. We wanted to bring a behind-the-scenes look at the recent event, as well as some longer-term perspectives, both for those of you who attended the show and for those of you we missed. Of course, we'll be back at Las Vegas next August in 2022, but until then, Cassie, how's it going? It's great, Eric. Thank you so much for having me on the show. This is so awesome. Absolutely. Yeah, it's been fun to talk about the show, obviously, before the show, but here we are beyond the show. Um, You know, this year in 2021, this is our fifth annual event. That includes 2020, where we went virtual for all the obvious reasons, but wanted to get a sense of, you know, what made this year a little different in your eyes? What were some of the, the goals that you and the rest of the team went into the planning season with? Yeah, totally. So 2021, of course, was the first time that we were in person since the world shut down uh, in early 2020. Uh, It was just the vibe at the conference was just wonderful. Everybody was really excited to be connecting in person again. And it was just unlike any other show that we that we'd had, really. Yeah, and I know uh, I've been to a few. We were in Oakland for a couple years. We've been in Las Vegas for a few years. Again, we're going to remain in Las Vegas into 2022. Um, But, you know, the industry has evolved, of course. Each event uh, still maintains that same long shelf life of educational expertise that we try to bring to the show with all of our fantastic speakers and exhibitors. But 2021, for so many different reasons in the industry, is a little bit different. Uh, What were some of the maybe points of differentiation that you, as the programming director, were hoping to highlight as we uh, put this show together this year? Absolutely. So my role has changed a little bit to be exclusively focused on the conference now, which is super exciting. Um, So a lot of what my goals were, were to uh, just dedicate even more time to bolstering the education for the industry. That means spending lots of time with our editorial advisory board, which is made up of 10 to 20 really exceptional people in the industry, very experienced people in the industry. And so we can use their insights and their expertise to help us create the most valuable and relevant content for our marketplace. So that was extremely important. Um, Another really important thing was to diversify our speaker lineup. Um, And we recruited folks who uh, had different perspectives, came from different backgrounds, and we really worked hand-in-hand with our advisory board member to help us identify who those key people were. Um, So that was something we were really excited about. Another thing we really tried to do was to expand our reach of content. Uh, As we launched the Hemp Grower publication a couple years ago, now we are starting to craft more of that hemp education content into our program, as well as uh, extraction content. We're just adding more and more of that into the fold each and every year, in addition to our heavy focus on cultivation and retail dispensary content. Absolutely. Yeah, sort of uh, taking a lot of material from the different media brands that we've been running for a number of years and and distilling them into the show. And it's been fun to see that evolve over the years. I know um, at the show itself, uh, you know, folks obviously saw 
us, the editors and, and the sales staff, all of us sort of running around and, and a lot of us, of course, being on stage, moderating panels and working through these discussions with our speakers, uh, certainly including you up on stage pretty frequently. Uh, were, there, were there any sessions that you were moderating that you'd want to call out here, uh, things that maybe stood out to you in the, again, in the grand scheme of things uh, that you might want to spotlight here? Yeah, so... Uh, one session that I moderated that was super exciting was the product formulation session uh, on day one of the show. And we had Dr. Greg Gerdeman, we had uh, Dr. Andrea Small Howard of GB Sciences, we also had Mike Hennessy of Wana Brands. And we really delved into the business of creating products for a key customer base and finding your niche in the market. and tackling some of these really important and complex and sometimes tough to talk about issues like the ethics of product formulation and what you're putting out there into the marketplace. We also touched on, you know, the controversial Delta 8 and THCO cannabinoids and all of these different things that uh, really have the market talking right now. Um, and one thing I think that was super notable was when Dr. Small Howard of GB Sciences was talking about the need for more cannabis research. She said something like, you know, it's a double-edged sword. Everybody wants cannabis research, and they would use cannabis research to help guide their business decisions, but nobody really wants to pay for it. Um, and until recently, there was a monopoly on federally approved cannabis research, and that was something that our keynote speaker, Dr. Sue Sisley of the Scottsdale Research Institute, really dialed into. She talked about how she actually litigated against the Drug Enforcement Agency and the Department of Justice to help end that monopoly. And now she and her team have secured a Schedule One license to study uh, some of these uh, substances that were for so long prohibited. Um, so that is uh, a really exciting development, and we're all kind of keeping an eye on what kind of work that she'll be able to share with us in the future. Yeah, that was uh, a really special moment in the show, I thought. Um, Dr. Sisley was fantastic up there. I know the whole team was super thrilled to be able to host her. And uh, it even got, I mean, it got fairly emotional, too, especially yeah. toward the end. It was, uh, it was quite the speech. Um, you know, we're definitely eager to, to share that part of the, the show with people. This episode, of course, is coming out on October 15th. And uh, if you're tuning in today on the 15th, um, that video of Dr. Sisley's speech will be at the top of CannabisBusinessTimes.com. So please do check that out. If you're tuning in later, uh, if you go to CannabisBusinessTimes.com slash videos, you can find the video there. And we're very happy to, to share that with folks. Um, it was, it was quite, the, quite the special moment. Absolutely. We are so excited to release this video to our entire, uh, I'm sorry, entire audience, um, even those who weren't able to make it. Um, and we hope you all enjoy it. Definitely. And, you know, that's the thing is uh, the event obviously is uh, it takes place over three days, uh, but it's certainly not just a flash in the pan. Uh, a lot of the planning that we do over the course of many months is really meant to take those three days and stretch them out across the next few weeks, months, and years for all the folks who attend. And it's kind of the same way or the same line of thinking that we bring to the magazines. You know, you can stack these up on your shelf and go back to a 2018 issue of Cannabis Business Times. And with the exception of maybe some news or, or certain, uh, certain developments, by and large, that information's still going to be helpful for your business. This is uh, long-term stuff we're putting together here. 
So I don't know if you wanted to comment on that because I know you know here we are we're two months out from from the show and obviously still talking about it and, and getting ready to plan next year's. But all this information is stuff that can be applied for the long term for businesses. Yeah, it's a really great way to put it, Eric. I mean, really, our cannabis conference is like an extension of our print and digital publications. It is complex. It is in-depth. It's a place where you'll be able to hear from experts. It's a place where you'll be able to get face-to-face with uh, technology and solutions providers. Um, But it's all packed into like this three-day extravaganza. And while all of our content is really relevant and timely, we also have some of those very substantive takeaways that will uh, help your business for years to come. So, yeah, it's a really great way to put it. Love it. Yeah, and cannot wait for uh, for next year again uh, in Las Vegas in August of 2022. And you can certainly check out CannabisConference.com for just the uh, the date right now, the save the date, so to speak. But that's where all the information is going to be. And you can sign up for the Cannabis Conference newsletter there as well because we will start rolling out some information, uh, you know, in the near future here. Um, but thank you, Cassie, for joining us. It was great catching up with you, um, you know, again, a few months out of the show. But this is, this is important stuff that we want to sort of keep, our, keep in the top of mind here. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. It was fun. Excellent. Well, for our feature interview this week, I was pleased to talk with Kimberly Kovacs, Chief Strategy Officer at Santa Fe Farms, which operates in the industrial hemp space. These are interesting times for those working in hemp. And Kim's financial background sets a helpful stage for anyone interested in the burgeoning industry. We've reported in the pages of Hemp Grower on the difficulties levied by the supply and demand curves in hemp, and Kim knows firsthand how complicated those forces can be. Kim hails from the cannabis space, where she was recently the CEO and chair of the ArcView Group. Her distinguished career has spanned more than 25 years in executive leadership and finance, with a focus on emerging companies in clean technology, software, life sciences, and of course, more recently, the high-growth cannabis sector. She's founded many successful startup ventures, raised over $120 million in capital, and delivered significant returns to investors. So please enjoy my conversation with Kimberly Kovacs. Well, Kim, thank you so much for joining us on the show this week. Very glad to get a chance to dig into uh, not only your background and Santa Fe Farms, but also just uh, the hemp industry in general, which is that's obviously a broad umbrella topic, uh, but eager to drill down on a couple of the important trends happening in the hemp space. Um, I did want to just sort of set the tone a little bit with uh, your recent arrival at Santa Fe Farms coming after your time at the ArcView Group. So, of course, that's, uh, that's at least one, really both feet in the cannabis space for a little while before coming to Santa Fe but what were some of the motivating factors that brought you into the hemp market more specifically in, in Santa Fe Farms, of course? Well, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for um, having me on today. It's truly a pleasure. And um, I'd like to kind of just roll back a little bit before that. So um, I would say in 2016, I was approached or, or had met up with a friend's mother-in-law and I'd known her for years. Uh, she was actually an opioid addict and had had a couple of cancer surgeries and had gone through, you know, that pain and was managing it with opioids, which was not a good solution for her. And she looked probably 20 years older than she was, had difficulty moving around, certainly couldn't drive, um, you know, being on all that medication and um, was in pretty dire straits. And one of her friends said for her to start smoking. And so she did. 
And so she basically came clean to my friend and myself and saying, hey, I've been doing cannabis for the last couple of months. I am now almost 100% off of my opioids. And that to me was extremely um, kind of eye-opening. It was surprising. I was, uh, you know, a little dumbfounded. I had no idea that cannabis and CBD and various other cannabinoids had that impact on the body. And so I really started to get educated. And I went to my first MJ Biz conference. I started really understanding what the industry was about, both from a cannabis and hemp perspective back then. And I actually joined ArcView as a member in 2017 and started making investments in the space, um, some of which were good, some not so good. And I also started a company called MyJane. And so that was about, you know, women's health and wellness using cannabis and in particular, very low dosing or CBD only solutions. And so again, kind of getting my, my foot into both the cannabis world and the hemp world back then. But one of the things that was really fascinating for me as I was going through this whole thing was to really kind of understand not just the regulatory side, but just all of the opportunities too that existed. And so I left my Jane after it was acquired by a company that went public in Canada. Um, we then, I joined, then joined, you know, ArcView. And we had our first thing at ArcView that really got me solid into hemp, which was we had our global hemp day. And again, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a junkie for knowledge and for data and for things that start to, you know, really point me in a next big opportunity direction and hearing from, you know, global community um, advocates, people who are interested in bringing hemp plants to India and Zimbabwe and China and the U.S., of course, and not just the CBD side of hemp, but the industrial side of hemp was, again, another aha moment for me. And I thought, wow, I have to really understand what this is about. Coincidentally, I met some of the folks at Santa Fe Farms about the same time. And when I heard what they were doing and how they were really going after the industrial hemp market, and not forsaking CBD, that has a, a time and a place, and it, it'll have a, probably a better time and place when the FDA gets uh, its arms around it a little bit more. But the industrial hemp is just incredible. I mean, we can start sequestering carbon right away as we grow it, um, more so than we can with an acre of trees if we plant an acre of hemp. I mean, it's fabulous. We can start to replace products. So right now we're working on replacing 25% of virgin plastic with hemp-derived plastic. That's amazing. You know, so if you think about our global footprint and all these things we get to do, to me, that was something I just could not pass up. And so for my love of ArcView and everything that I was doing there, I just thought my next big purpose here and my next big adventure was going to be in this industrial hemp side. So I joined Santa Fe Farms. I'm their chief strategy officer. I'm also their chief financial officer. And we are really looking at bringing this uh, supply chain solution to the industry. Yeah, I think, um, you know, that tees up a quote that I'm going to pull from, of course, our recent uh, August issue, August 2021 of Hemp Grower, featuring uh, you and the Santa Fe Farms team. Uh, you had a great quote in there that I'll read real quick, because I think it, it plays off, especially the carbon sequestration and, and plastic that you mentioned there. Quote, there is revenue to be earned in this industry right now, but the long game is the trillions of dollars in displacement of different products, which is going to take time. So again, you sort of started opening the door there, but I was hoping to have you elaborate on that line a little bit 
particularly the part about this is going to take time, because I think that's the critical clause in that quote. Yeah, and I think that's part of a little bit of a problem that we have, I would say, both in the cannabis and hemp industries. You know, we've been we've been dealing with, you know, a regulated market uh, and a very strict regulated market on both of those for a very long time. And now that they're kind of opened up, we want to be hurry, hurry. You know, we think this is sort of the tech industry where, you know, net new and novel technologies come out, you know, once every couple months. Right. And they completely replace everything that's been done. But realistically, we're more like oil and gas. We're more like uh, institutional, you know, infrastructure type companies and plays where we don't see, you know, new refineries getting built. We don't see, you know, new, um, you know, paper mills coming into play. So we have to work within those industries as they exist today, because the infrastructure costs to redo them is very expensive. And it's very hard to just completely abandon, you know, the fact that we're using fossil fuels. But if we could start to minimize this or we could start to insert hemp into some of these other already established supply chains and start to augment what we are currently doing, eventually we can do the full replacement. So it is going to take time and it's going to take time and money. And then so let me elaborate that a little bit more, because I think this is an important point, is that we also can't ask the farmers who are going to be growing this hemp to take that transition risk. And that has been already tried and it's not going to work. So for example, when we started growing hemp for CBD, the farmers were left holding the bag when the CBD prices started dropping. And we can't do that to farmers. We need to guarantee their revenue. We need to make sure they're having a living wage off of their farmland and incentivize them to come and grow hemp. And so that's what Santa Fe Farms is going to do. And that's what we're doing right now. We have a farm partner program. We're going to have a million acres under contract by the end of next year. We're working with indigenous and conventional farmers here in the United States to get to that million acres. And But again, that's going to take time. Because they need to rotate in those crops. They need to understand how to farm. We have to have the right genetics. And then we also have to have the right industry industry players at the other end of that to say, hey, we're going to buy all this product. We're going to get the offtake agreements for it. And so really Santa Fe Farms is playing that middle place. I like to say we're kind of like the Uber technologies, right? We're matching, you know, riders and drivers, and we're really controlling the platform in which they engage. And that's really what Santa Fe Farms is, is we're that platform. We're creating the space where we can provide stability to the farmers and de-risk that end result to the supplier. But as I said, it t- it's going to take some time. Yeah, that point about risk, I think, is super important here. And you know, I know there's a lot of players in the hemp space right now who are sort of... Um, you can call it a land rush or a race against time. Everyone's trying to build components of this sprawling market infrastructure. And I think that one of the big points of differentiation among these companies is, uh, I go back to the term ESG. And I know that mm-hmm. obviously you're familiar with this aspect of business uh, very much so. Uh, I found a line that you had written, ESG is my mission, hemp is my vehicle. And I really liked that and wanted to call it out here, but was hoping uh, maybe for the listeners, if you could just real briefly define ESG Um, And also maybe explain how that fits into what we're talking about here. Absolutely. Well, hopefully I get the definition right, because some people think of it differently. But uh, ESG is environmental, 
social and governance. So it's it's base, it's an acronym. Uh, it's been used a lot. Uh, a lot of corporations now have ESG missions statements, uh, ESG investing uh, requirements, and so a lot of corporate America has adopted this, you know, moniker ESG. And it means a little bit differently, I think, for each of them. And some of them want to be really into um, what I would call sort of sustainable products. And those are different than carbon capture products. And like, for example, um, if I were a plastic company, and I'm saying I want ESG, I want to be replacing that virgin plastic with something that is going to be a little bit more friendly, nature friendly, like hemp. But it's not going to continue to sequester carbon because it's in a water bottle. We're, we're, we're looking to have it be recycled or, or to have it go back and be, you know, compostable, right? So once that carbon gets back in the earth, it gets released back into the atmosphere. So there's a little bit of a competing thing with ESG that we have to be really familiar with. And that's what we are here at Santa Fe Farms. We're, we're here to demystify those solutions for different people based on what their goals and objectives are. So from our perspective, ESG is very broad. So we deal with customers that are looking for carbon sequestration, right? They need, to, they need those carbon credits. They need to offset, you know, other areas of their business, whether it be mining or, you know, in the oil and gas space, or they could be a big methane producer of, of some sort. Cattle farming is one of them, right? And so there's a lot of ways in which we can help them with a hemp solution to reduce their carbon footprint. Whereas perhaps a plastic manufacturer, we can help them reduce the amount of carbon petroleum-based that they're using in their product and, and substitute that with a natural product. So ESG, the environmental side of that, as I said, could be on both of those sides. The S part, super important to us because to me, social responsibility in the hemp space is actually a little different than it was in cannabis. Cannabis, it was about, you know, incarceration and, you know, social equity programs and social justice programs for those that were affected by the war on drugs and these various things like this. Absolutely necessary in the cannabis space. Now in hemp, though, we didn't quite have the same. But what we do have in hemp, which I think people really maybe don't think about too much, is that with indigenous lands, we just took their land. You, we gave them nothing to give back as far as, you know, creating industries or, you know, being able to be self-sufficient, except for gambling, tobacco, and liquor, you know, or fireworks. I mean, it was like nothing that they could really hang their hat on and become an industry. And so for us, the social part of ESG is embracing indigenous lands and providing them a means to be in industry which I think is super important. And then the governance side, so we actually cover all three of those, um, is really how do we start to standardize this process? Like how do we really look at carbon credits that are captured by growing hemp? Well, if you grow it in Idaho or you grow it in Florida, you're gonna have a different profile of the plant. It's going to be different amounts of water. It's going to be different amount of, you know, sunlight that's going to be hitting it, perhaps different genetics, different soil amendments. So there's a lot of things that go into that sort of factoring of the carbon credit. And we're really on the forefront of that. And we brought in a gentleman, Stuart Cohen, who has been literally on the forefront writing books and speaking and publishing around sustainability and carbon for the last, you know, 25, 30 years. And so, you know, by having Stuart in as our chief science officer 
and leading our carbons division, we're really looking at how do we create that governance around carbon. So when someone says, you know, we want to engage with Santa Fe Farms and we want to, you know, capture or, or work with you on these carbon credits, they're validated and they're secure carbon credits. Yeah, I think, um, so. and those three folks really interplay super well together. Uh, and I think, again, that's sort of like a work, them working together is almost like an engine to get to where we're going, uh, it yeah. seems like in many ways. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit toward, uh, to dig in more on, on the finance side. Uh, I know on our sister publication, Cannabis Business Times, we write a lot about the, uh, the very well-known banking and uh, capital raise issues in that industry. Um, and that's certainly, there's some overlap with hemp for sure. So I wanted to ask you about um, capital raises. This could be for farmers or for uh, bigger networks of farmers like Santa Fe. I mean, what are some of the challenges of raising money in hemp in 2021? And how can you overcome that? I know that's sort of a big question, but um, yeah. I think there's a lot of folks who are interested in getting into the hemp space uh, and any aspect of the supply chain, really, uh, from growing to processing and on, um, that are trying to figure out how much money this is going to take and, and who might help out on, on the capital raise side. Yeah. So I think one of the most um, glaring things for me being different in this space than it has been in other industries that I've been in, such as tech or even in cannabis, I'll be honest, I mean, or CBD brands, you could actually stand up a CBD brand pretty quickly, a website, a good label, you know, some, some, you know, excellent marketing and social, a good relationship with a private label manufacturer, right? Good quality product, but put your name on it and then start marketing it. Not a whole lot of money necessary to launch that business, to be honest. And other companies I'd say within the space and technology too, right? We can get a lot of tech developed now, pretty rapidly for um, a smaller amount of money than it used to be. That is not the case when you're talking about supply chain. And I equate it more or look at it similarly to like a life science kind of company. So let's say I want to do drug development, right? I want to get the next cure for XYZ cancer. That's going to cost me a lot of money because in order for that product to be approved, I've got to go through clinical trials, you know, case studies, research, FDA approval, one, two, and three levels, it's a $50 million deal, right? But I know that if I'm starting this drug development company from day one, that that's going to be my capital requirements to get that product to marketplace. We have to start thinking the same way about hemp. If you want to be an industrial hemp, it is a $50 million investment. And what I mean by that is, You've got to pay for crops to develop the right genetics, the right crop, the right, um, you know, there's going to be loss on crops. I mean, you know, you're going to lose to weather conditions, locusts, various things like this. So you've got to have at least a couple cycles worth. You're going to need to spend 20 to $30 million minimum on processing equipment. And I think that's where the industry is really kind of hung up right now is that people are, you know, growing or they've got, you know, opportunities to get like biomass or bulk product. But now what do you do with that product? In order to get it into the industrial supply chain, it has to be processed. Whether it's oil, which we're doing now, which is less expensive, or decording, which is more expensive, 
or paralysis, which is also more expensive. So you start to add up the equipment costs of these things. And then once you get it into this sort of form, how does it get into a paper bill, for example, right? You've got to have additional processing that breaks it down into the cellulosic material that's necessary for a paper mill at the micron level that they need it. And so I don't want to discourage people in this industry, but I think we have to be realists and say, you know, in order for you to be very, to be successful in that part of this industry, you really have to look at what the capital requirements are, I'd say, before you start. Because if we're getting, I'm getting inquiries, you know, I'm the chief strategy officer here. So I get inquiries at least multiple times a week on companies that are like, I just need $20 million, right? I've got all these customers, but I need $20 million for the equipment to be able to process so that they can buy from me. And I said, yes, I know. That's the problem. And that's actually what Santa Fe Farms is solving by going to the capital markets in a bigger way and saying, we want, you know, not just one processing plant, we want 60 of them. Yeah. I mean, is this a, I was going to go back to maybe the, the 2019 season heading into 2020. One of the big prevailing narratives at that time was a lot of farmers got into the game. A lot of biomass was created. There's oversupply sitting in, in dry storage all over the place, and 2020 uh, became a le- it became a less appealing market to stay in. And by and large, I feel like not to overgeneralize, but I feel like these were small farmers who were more or less experimenting, and and maybe it didn't go super well financially. Is that uh, narrative still in play? Meaning, are a lot of farmers still chasing maybe what they think is an easy? CBD play, and it turns out uh, it's a lot harder to nail down a contract than you might have thought. Yeah, I think the farmers are definitely, you know, they did get burned. Um, I think they're very reluctant to get back into uh, hemp farming in any way, shape, or form. Um, CBD for sure. Uh, Industrial hemp a little bit less so because they see that this is a different application. But again, it's risky. I mean, if you can grow alfalfa or corn or soy or something else on your land and be guaranteed a certain amount of revenue, why would you assume the risk in just growing something that you don't know who's going to buy it, right? They're just not equipped for that. Um, And then beyond that, you know, their harvesting equipment may not even be suitable for hemp. And what they found is when they, you know, had 100 acres, they could do it. But maybe if they had 200 or 500, no, it's different kinds of levels of equipment to be able to do that at scale. And so what, um, and that became, you know, actually we were farmers. So Santa Fe Farms had a couple of farms to start with. And what we recognized quickly is that we're not farmers, but we understand the economics of it. And we understand what the risks are and we're here to support the farmer. So in our farm partner program, we guarantee the revenue. Here's the seed. Here's how to plant it. Here's how to do this. Here's how to measure the soil for the carbon credits. It's like a whole playbook. I call it a recipe. Um, You know, and here's some of the ingredients. Have at it. Bake the cake. And then we're buying the cake. And so from a farmer's perspective, that's really the only way they're going to move forward because they can't take those risks anymore. They really were out, you know, stretched out. I mean, there's a case going on in Montana right now. It's a $65 million lawsuit, you know, because they were promised these offtake contracts and they were with smaller players that just don't even exist anymore. That's not our model. I mean, our players are tier one customers. They're not going away. Yeah. Well, looking ahead, I realize we're sort of, um, I mean, 
you know, September heading into October, harvest time, um, heading into uh, that the important off season. There's no real off season per se, uh, just a busier processing season. What are some of the things or market trends rather that you're keeping a close eye on over the next six months? Uh, that could be market infrastructure um, aspects that we've talked about already. It could be uh, more on the sales side. What are some things that you're paying real close attention to say between now and next planning season? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things on that, you know, to be honest. One is, um, you know, we're working in the current offtake agreements that we have with our farm partners and our farm partner program. Um, We're seeing a tremendous amount of uh, genetics that we're working on kind of in the off season, if you will, uh, because we can grow those in different ways um, in different climate controlled environments. And, um, you know, where do we sort of optimize our next grow season? And so we're really kind of focusing on that. Um, you know, our plan is to have, you know, probably 10 to 20,000 acres planted in the next year, um, which then gets us into sort of this exponential million acres within a few years. And so um, for us, it's really about kind of identifying those areas and those partners. Um, indigenous lands is going to be a big one for us. I mean, we've, we're already in discussions with about four or five different uh, tribal communities all very interested in this. And so, like I said, we're going to be working kind of in the next few months in more of a greenhouse environment, but also maybe a little bit of on sites when we can, because some are, you know, have multiple growing seasons um, to be able to kind of really dial those in. Um, but let's, you would ask more about macro trending and, you know, kind of things that we're seeing. Um, I think that we are starting to make a little bit of a dent Jeff Whaling might, um, I'm going to give him a lot of credit for this one. You know, President Biden, when he came in, was asking for information. And so NHA has been providing information. Other groups have been providing information to the administration on hemp. What is it? You know, how is it grown? Where can it be grown? How can it become a crop of the United States? And I think one of our goals, too, over the next really three to six months, and I see this as a macro trend for industry, is that we need to be designated a substantial crop in the United States, minimally. And there's a number. Now, nobody wants to tell you what that number is. I'm going to say it's a million acres. But there's a number that is in the mind of government that says once it hits that, it's now a substantial crop, which means we get subsidies. We're in discussions. We got a little bit of a seat at the table. It might be at the kitty table, but it's at the table, right? And we get to start having some notoriety around hemp and what we could do then and being um, front and center on some of these solutions. Until we get that designation, we're a hobby. To rally as an industry, we need to get out of the hobby zone and we need to get into the substantial crop zone. I think that's a really important point, especially people keeping that phrase substantial crop in their minds. Uh, you know, oddly enough, I was just talking to Jeff Whaling before our call. Okay. And uh, yep. he was discussing um, the early September letter that the NHA sent to the House Budget Committee uh, yep. as the infrastructure bill conversation is going on in DC. And, you yep. know, this goes back to the whole idea of product displacement and, you know, potentially trillions of dollars in revenue that could be seen. Uh, once the infrastructure is in place to begin swapping out certain products 
with, uh, right. with hemp sourced uh, materials. So anyway, I mean, super exciting yeah. time in the industry, yeah. in late 2021, for sure. So I think there's some, some uh, bridge building, let's just say, that we need to do right now so that when the next growing season comes in or farmers start to look to their banks or others for subsidies or how do I finance these programs that they now are available to them to be able to do so if they're not part of a program like Santa Fe Farms, right? Where we're already kind of creating that um, sort of financial ecosystem. So I think that to me is really critical. Um, and then I'd also say, you know, CBD is sort of a TBD right now, right? Um, you know, states have stepped up. California, you know, for example, is stepping into, you know, we're going to allow this in food and consumption for humans and various things like this. Um, but it's going to come under now an, another set of regulations, Right. Do we have CBD only stores like we have dispensaries? Could be, you know? And so I think that's not quite the market we want. We want to have a free market. We want to be able to go to the grocery store. We want to be able to buy in our food. Coca-Cola wants to come in, you know, whatever. But um, I think that we're still a little bit of a ways there. So I wouldn't put that on my radar for the next sort of growing season. So I would say, you know, I'd stick to industrial hemp versus uh, CBD heavy. Yeah. Definitely going to be an interesting couple of years, although that probably goes without saying. Uh, very <laughs> exciting times here. Um, Kim, you know, I want to thank you for your time and for joining us on the show. This was a fantastic conversation. I really enjoyed uh, the different angles we touched on there. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. And that's a wrap on another episode of Beyond the Show. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Kimberly Kovacs from Santa Fe Farms. I know I did, and I know, of course, here we are in October. This is harvest season for hemp farmers all over the place. And uh, those supply and demand curves we were talking about are never more in play than they are right now. Um, Although, again, these issues never really go away, even in the quote-unquote off-season, which, as we noted, isn't much of an off-season in the first place. So we're definitely going to be adding some more hemp content to the show, just like we do at the actual cannabis conference. Uh, following the work we do in Hemp Grower. Also, hope you enjoyed that conversation with Cassie Tomaselli, Cannabis Conference Programming Director. She's been a great leader for our team, helping to shape the tone and the experience of Cannabis Conference. And again, we're already looking forward to Cannabis Conference 2022. Check out CannabisConference.com for more information there. Sign up for the newsletter. More info is going to be coming out very soon. And until then, every Friday, join me here beyond the show.